Well, we're continuing our study on the doctrines of the Christian faith, fundamental doctrines. Uh, we want to focus on a, a passage this morning that will guide us in our study of the cross of Christ, the glory of the cross of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The passage is John 13, 31 through 35. John 13, 31 through 35. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I've loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. We're entering into a dangerous season for Christians. Uh, November and December, Thanksgiving and Christmas, where our lives become um, like life on steroids. Everything becomes busier. Uh, there are many more distractions come our way. It's like our culture becomes uh, just a shot of steroids as well. And it's a challenge for us to keep our priorities clear and straight. The challenge for us is not to keep the main thing the main thing. To not major in the minors. Not to be in the thick of thin things. It is a great challenge. So I ask you a very simple question this morning. A very simple question. What is the main thing in your life right now? What is the main thing in your life right now? Last night, what were the things that were consuming your heart? This morning, what was your first worry? Driving to church, what were the things that were occupying your thoughts, consuming your thoughts? What is or what were the objects of your obsession? What do you think about the most during the day? What concerns you? What are you most worried about? That's why we have the Lord's Day. That's why we have preaching of the Word. That's why in our nine-week membership course, we study the doctrine of the cross. Because as Christians, we must be cross-bearers. The cross of Christ must be central to us. It is the blazing center of the glory of God. All other lights must be dimmed and then ultimately be extinguished in our lives so that only the cross shines clear. Only that, so that only it is clearly visible. Don Carson said, I fear that the cross, without ever being disowned, is constantly in danger of being dismissed from the central place it must enjoy by relatively insights that take on far too much weight. Whenever the periphery is in danger of displacing the center, we are not far removed from idolatry. If anything else displaces the cross of Christ, as the center of our lives, we are not far from idolatry. For the Apostle Paul, the cross was central. 1 Corinthians 15.3, he said, I delivered to you as of first importance. What was the most important thing in Paul's message? That Christ 
died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. This was the first important truth for the Apostle Paul. So, to have the cross be the center of our lives, we cannot look upon it from afar. We cannot keep an arm's distance from the cross. We must draw dangerously near the fire of Christ's cross for it to inflame our hearts. John Stott said, The cross is the blazing fire at which the flame of our love is kindled. But we have to get near enough for its sparks to fall upon us. So for the next good hour, we're going to be thinking about the cross of Christ. We're going to draw near and let its sparks fall upon us, fall upon our hearts. And it might inflame us to love Him more. Our study of the cross must begin with its ugliness. Must begin with the ugliness of the cross, to rightly view the cross, to see the beauty and glory of the cross of Christ, we must first see its awfulness, its repulsive and hideous essence. We must ask ourselves, why did God, the Father, who loved the Son, choose such a heinous mode of death for His own Son? Why did not Christ just die by stoning? An awful way to die, but much better than the cross. Why didn't Jesus die by being thrown off the cliff as he was, as he was threatened in the Gospel of Luke? Why did not Jesus die of a heart attack or lung cancer or any of the various diseases that are in the world? Why did not Jesus die simply of old age? Why did God choose this awful method of death by which Christ would pay ransom for our sins? The answer is because the cross of Christ uniquely reveals the depravity of man. The shame of the cross, the humiliation of the cross is not with Christ on the cross, it's with us. You see, we're looking at the mirror of ourselves. We are seeing the, the ultimate uh, result, ultimate product of our efforts, of our sinfulness, of our depravity, of our evil. This is what we accomplished together as humanity. Behold that man, the innocent man, the Son of God. See the shame of it and it is ours. We see our own repulsiveness. See him dying by stoning, dying by throwing off, being thrown off the cliff, him dying of old age would not reflect our shame. It's compared to the cross of Christ. Reveals the ugliness of man's evil and sinfulness. As you look upon the act of the cross, we find that dying the cross for the first century people was considered the most shameful way to die. Being crucified was a degrading insult. It was a horrific form of capital punishment. The condemned died an agonizingly slow death by suffocation, gradually becoming too exhausted and traumatized. He would, he would die as a repugnant, the most demeaning form of execution. It was so demeaning that Roman citizens were exempt from crucifixion. The authority reserved the cross for rebellious slaves. 
conquered people, for notorious robbers and assassins. The Romans used it only for the scum, the lowest of the low. For the Jewish people, it represented a double shame because they considered a man cursed if he hangs on a tree. And they considered anyone who was crucified cursed by God Himself. Galatians 3.3 He was brought to open shame. Hebrews 6.6 6. Crucifixion was surely one of the most monstrous of all human inventions. I mean, we, we know through our studies, our readings, even through uh, movies, that our Lord was scourged, whipped with tongs of leather to which pieces of bone and metal had been attached. It was such a horrendous punishment that people sometimes died just as a result of scourging. They wouldn't even make it to the cross. Next, the victim was nailed through hands and his feet to a wooden cross, then lifted to a vertical position and fixed firmly in the ground, and that was it. He was left simply to die. He was impaled in a position from which escape was impossible, and he was left there until death overtook him. By sheer animal instinct, the man would struggle to keep alive, although life, longer life meant longer torture. His body was slumped forward under its own weight, thereby constricting the lungs and restricting breathing. But again and again, despite the intense pain and pierced hands and feet, he would heave his chest upwards to draw breath and keep alive. Ultimately, death would come as a relief, but only after hours and hours, often days of indescribable agony. The days when the Romans ruled was considered the most horrible way to die. It was such a shameful death that many said he could not have been the Son of God. They used it as an argument against Jesus as the Messiah, as the Son of God, because God would never allow His Son to die in such a horrible way. It is the most sinful act in human history. Jesus, who was so undeserving of the sufferings He faced, was killed. And not just physical death, but spiritual death of being separated from God the Father. For He cried out in Matthew 27, 46, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where spiritually he was abandoned, left utterly alone, forsaken by the Father whom he loved. So in a word, our Lord experienced hell on the cross. So to rightly understand the cross, we must begin with its ugliness. Now how does, how did our Lord describe the cross? Verse 31. When he had gone out, meaning when Judas left Jesus said now is the son of man glorified he uh, tied the word glory 
with the cross. Now the Son of Man glorified. This is a most remarkable statement. Now the Son of Man glorified. The cross manifests Jesus' glory. The cross manifests Jesus' glory. Our Lord's glory is supremely manifested not through strength and majesty, not through power or might, not through the sword, not through conquering nations, not through His beauty and loveliness, not through His holiness or purity. Our Lord's glory was supremely revealed through the weakness and shame of the cross. In a shame-slash-bragging culture in the Middle East, this honor-seeking culture, our Lord was humiliatingly crucified. And when He was lifted up to be mocked and rejected by the world, our Lord was glorified. That was His glory. So in the cross of Christ, we have both the ugliest act in human history and the most beautiful act in human history. What a beautiful irony for our spiritual death taste buds. That's why Paul said in Romans 11.33, Oh, the depths of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. How amazing. How incomprehensible. How profound is God's wisdom of revealing His glory through the cross. Now, how was Jesus glorified through the cross? How was He glorified through the cross? Four following ways. On the cross, we see our Lord's perfect love for God the Father. On the cross, we see Jesus' perfect love for God the Father. Our Lord's perfect and humble submission to God is seen to the cross. Remember, I mean, this is, you know, our Lord did not want to go to the cross. He loved us, but not enough to be forsaken by the Father. He loved us, but not enough that He would uh, incur the wrath of the Father. Not so much that you will be separated from the Father. His desire is clear in Gethsemane. Father, is there any other way? But not my will. Your will be done. My will is, I don't want to go to the cross. But your will be done. And after three times praying that prayer, when it was made clear to him that this was the will of the Father, our Lord's response was, yes, I'll do what I most Detest, causing you to be angry at me, causing you to be indignant and incur your wrath, causing you to abandon me. I'll go to the cross because of my love for you. Our Lord made much of God. So first and foremost, we see on the cross, Jesus' love, His great love for the Father. Secondly, on the cross, Jesus is glorified because there He performed the greatest work in the whole history of the entire, entire world. 
There on the cross, He performed the greatest work in human history. He accomplished what others could only dream of doing. He gave His life as a ransom sacrifice to redeem us from sin. He saved us there from God's wrath, Romans 5.9. He redeemed us from our empty way of life given to us by our forefathers, 1 Peter 1.18. He rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into His kingdom, Colossians 1.13. He reconciled us while we were yet God's enemies through His death, Romans 5.10. By His death on the cross, He brought peace. Where there was only enmity and war between mankind and God, He brought peace. He brought reconciliation. He brought us to God. It was accomplished by Christ on the cross. For it, the centuries waited. And to it, the centuries, we look back. Thirdly, Jesus is glorified because Jesus destroyed sin on the cross. Sin, our mortal enemy. We fight it every day. And we find that it is powerful. We find that we have no power against it apart from Christ. We find that it cannot be destroyed. Sin's enslaving power and the weakness of our flesh results in greater power of sin over our lives apart from Christ. And Jesus did what no man could ever do. He triumphed over sin on the cross. Jesus won. Sin and death were no match for Him. It was not even close. It was a blowout. 1 Corinthians 15, 55-57 Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is in the law. But thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus was victorious, and because by our faith we are in Christ, that victory is now ours. If our Lord had committed a single sin a slight hint of pride or arrogance, a modicum of impurity or selfishness, sin would have been victorious. Our Lord would be dying only for His own sins. He would not be our substitute. But the Bible is clear. 1 Peter 1.19, He was a lamb without blemish or defect. Hebrews 4.15, He was tempted in every way, yet was without sin. 1 Peter 2.22, He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in His mouth. He triumphed, and He was set the captives free. He set us free from the guilt, shame, and bondage of sin. He set us free, Romans 6.18. He did what the law was powerless to do, Law was powerless. Men thought, if only I could perfectly obey the law of God, I'll be set free from sin. If only I could stop lying, cheating, stealing, lusting, being greedy, blaspheming. If only I could abound in good works, pray, give, fast, then I'll be righteous and I'll go to heaven. But all men found that the law was powerless to save anyone. 
the weakness because the weakness lay not with the law, but with our sinful nature. Because of corruption in our flesh and in our hearts, we were without hope, we were helpless. Oh, our Lord did what the law could not do. He conquered sin on our behalf. And He conquered death. And finally, the manner in which He wrought this work also glorified Him. The manner in which He wrought this work also glorified Him. He was a willing sufferer. A willing lamb led to the slaughter. The price was cheerfully paid. He was led, not driven as a lamb to the slaughter. He was not a victim. No one took his life. He laid it down voluntarily. As the good shepherd, he did not run away from our enemies. No. He saw the wolf and the bear and to protect the flock, he laid himself down. He endured the cross, despising its shame, and not until offended justice and the broken laws were fully satisfied did he cry, It is finished. That is why the the cross is a glorious thing. For these reasons, the cross glorifies Christ, and therefore, in the eyes of the world, the cross is ugly, it is shameful, detestable, something to be neglected, set aside. But for us, we cherish the cross of Christ. It is our highest prize, it is our boast. It is our loftiest thought, it is our most precious memory. We love the cross. Christians love the cross. What the world considers foolish, shameful, humiliating, utterly thank- disgusting, For us, we thank God for the cross. We hold it high. It is our boast, singular boast. Now, not only was our Lord glorified by the cross, but God the Father is also glorified through the cross. God the Father is glorified through the cross. Verse 31 Now is the Son of Man glorified, talking about the cross, and God is glorified in Him. God is glorified in Him. What a truth. The cross work of Christ was not only the basis of our salvation, not only the glorification of the Son of Man Himself, but it was also the brightest manifestation of the glory of God. Every attribute of deity was superlatively magnified at Calvary. Every attribute of God was manifested, revealed, declared on Calvary. Christ displayed all the glorious attributes of God on the cross. What a truth. How was God glorified? I mean, there's an infinite list here. Let's go through a few. First of all, the power of God was exceedingly glorified at the cross, the power of God. On the cross, kings of the earth, rulers to counsel against God and against His Christ. There, the terrible enmity of a carnal mind, of the carnal mind, and the desperate wickedness of the human heart did their worst. They try to thwart the redemptive plan of God. 
They try to undo God's plan of salvation of the elect and somehow hinder His work of glorifying Himself to the cross. But they were utterly unsuccessful. No one could stop, hinder, or undo God's plan of saving the elect through the cross of Christ. The power of God was glorified at the cross. Secondly, the justice of God was exceedingly glorified at the cross. The justice of God. Some might say, how does the death of Jesus reveal the justice of God? To me, it is unjust. He was sinless. He was undeserving of, of, of such a punishment. It would be unjust if he was just dying for himself. But it satisfied the justice of God because the Bible tells us he is our substitute. He died in our place. And so the justice of God was revealed and satisfied where He forgave us because the payment was made. Ransom payment was made. His justice was fulfilled. The demands of the law were satisfied. It's the verse Sherry read. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He who knew no sin became sin so that we might be the righteousness of God. Our sin was imputed to Him and He was judged for it. God declared that He does not leave the guilty unpunished. And when the Lord became our blessed substitute, bearing all of our iniquities, He hung there as the guilty one. And so God, who is immutably just, did not spare His own Son, but caused Him to die. He would not release the least amount of that debt until righteousness was satisfied. The justice of God was fulfilled by Christ's death. And because of that, we are saved. Thirdly, the holiness of God was exceedingly glorified at the cross. Holiness of God. Habakkuk 1.13 says, Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. And when Christ was made a curse for us, Galatians 3.13, the thrice holy God turned away from Him. And it was in this agonizing hour, Christ cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Never did God so manifest His hatred of sin as when He turned away from His only Son, because of our sin. It showed that God does not show favoritism. That even with His only Son, whom He loved, our sins were laid upon Him. He did not withhold His holy anger. But He abandoned Him, forsook Him, abandoned Him to hell. God's demand of holiness stirred by sin 
is satisfied only by the cross of Christ. And we see that in the cross. And then finally, maybe my favorite revelation of God on the cross. The love of God was exceedingly glorified at the cross. The love of God was exceedingly glorified at the cross. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. 1 John 4.10 This is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Romans 5.8 But God demonstrates His love for us. Where does He demonstrate His love? By giving us gifts on Christmas? By giving us a nice family, good friends, giving us good grades, giving us material possessions? Where is God's love seen in our lives? It is seen in the cross of Christ where God demonstrates it once for us that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. There were Many manifestations of God's love towards the world, but none brighter than the cross of Christ. Well, let me tell you a story that illustrates this. I heard this story many, many years ago. Many of you are familiar with it, especially if you go back to our Cypress Baptist youth days. I heard this story so long ago, I don't remember who told it to me, where I heard it first, or whether it's even a true story or not. But... The meaning of it helps us to understand how God's love is revealed in the cross. The story is told of a young boy who had a mother whose face was badly disfigured. He noticed that his mom didn't look like other moms. Her skin was stretched like leather. Her eyes were sunken in. Her face was badly scarred. His mom would walk into school every day and other children, even other parents, would stare at him, stay a distance away, stare at him and his mother. And as children as they are, they start to make fun of him because of her. They would say cruel and awful things, um, making a mockery, shaming him because of his mom. After a while, walking together to school, he became embarrassed. And in his heart, he didn't want her to walk into school anymore. He didn't want others to see him with his mom. He didn't want her as his mom. One day, after a day of after schoolmates had ridiculed him, called him and his mom many day, names, he came home crying and he thought in his heart how he wished he had a different mother. He asked, said to himself, why couldn't he have a normal mom with a beautiful face? His mom asked him what had happened and he was angry at her, angry that she was so ugly. He told her, Mom, my friends call you a monster. They call you a freak. And yelled at her and told her to never again to come to school with him. 
he wanted to never again be seen with her in public. Several days later, he was walking home from school. A neighbor approached him and asked how his mom was doing. He didn't know what he meant. This neighbor asked if the boy knew why his mom's face was so disfigured. He said no. The neighbor told him that many years ago when the boy was just a toddler, there was a fire in their home. The whole house was engulfed in flames. And as everyone gathered outside, they could all hear hear him as a little boy crying in the bedroom. The fire engulfed the house. No one dared rush in. The boy's mom rushed into the house to save him from the fire. In doing so, her face was badly burned and permanently scarred. She risked her life for her son and in doing so was badly injured in saving him. It was then that he realized that his mom was disfigured to save his life. So now with tears streaming from his eyes, he ran home, rushing him, he saw his mom, and for the first time, his mom's face was different. She was beautiful. Her disfigured face, her scars, showed him her deep love for him. He asked for her forgiveness, asked her to walk into school the next day, and every day afterwards, she was no, he was no longer ashamed of his mom. He was proud. She was now beautiful to him. He loved each scar on his mother's face because they were all marks of her deep love for him. What a moving story and it helps all of us as believers to rightly view the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross reveals God's love for us. The cross revealed Christ's love for the Father and God's love for us. That is why we love the cross. God's justice God's holiness, God's power is revealed. But we see the once and for all demonstration of God's love for us on the cross. God's punishment shows how holy God is of His Son, but also how much He loved us. How much He loved us. Finally, the cross reveals that the God, God the Father will glorify the Son after the cross. Verse 32, If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself and glorify Him at once. Christ is glorified in the cross. God is glorified in the cross. And then God will glorify Christ after the cross. And that's exactly what happened. Resurrection, ascension, and exaltation. Hebrews 1.3 The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. After He had provided purification for our sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty in Heaven. First Peter 1 Peter 3.22 
He has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to Him. Jesus is now glorified, sitting at God's right hand, exalted by God, Philippians 2, 9 and 10. Therefore God exalted Him to the highest place, gave Him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Finally, our response. What is our response? Our response is to glorify God. Do whatever it takes. Give our best efforts. Have the willingness to do whatever it takes to glorify God at all costs. That's the response of believers. Three ways to glorify God. First of all, loving fellow Christians in light of the cross. Loving fellow Christians. This is the main thing, brothers and sisters. As people of the cross, what is our first response? Is to love fellow Christians. John 13, 34, 35. Right? right after talking about the glory of the cross, he has said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. It's a new commandment. The old commandment was, love your neighbor as you love yourself. I'll give you a new commandment. To love others just as I have loved you through the cross. The mark of discipleship is love for fellow believers. It is the one thing by which we are to be known among all men. We are not to be known by special rights or habits, not by special form of dress or manner of speech, not by special restrictions, you know, dietary restrictions or unusual customs. No, we are set apart from this world by this singular practice, singular commitment of loving the local church of loving fellow believers. We are marked by deep, genuine, and tender affection for one another. This is how we glorify Christ. Do you understand? This is how we manifest the glory of the unseen Christ to the world. It's not through power. It's not through debates and evidences and arguments. It's not through some wisdom or strength or splendor or majesty. It's not through money. It's not through political influence. It's not, it's not through uh, a building. We manifest the glory of God by our sacrificial, unconditional, and eternal love for fellow Christians. This is to be the internal commitment that exists in all followers of Christ. See, in the world, they, they, they don't see true love. They don't know it. They don't experience it. Uh, they don't understand it. They long for it, but they're utterly foreigners to it. And when they come to a group of believers, they see it firsthand. Not love for them. No, they see the, the genuine love that exists 
powerfully between and among believers. So when a group of believers genuinely love one another, it is a powerful witness to the glory of Christ. Our Lord was speaking. That's why Judas had to leave. That's why our Lord didn't say this until Judas left. Lest there be any misunderstanding. Once the son of perdition, once the non-believer has left, love one another. This is a new commandment. By this, all men will know you are my disciples. By your love for one another. Will Metzger said, when Christians as a group get together, there is power. The world will know we are Christ's disciples by the love we display for each other. We should welcome unbelievers as observers Observers in our fellowship communities where we speak not mere words but live concepts. When as an individual Christian you show love to an unbeliever, he can always excuse you as an exception. But when he sees several Christians treat each other and him with love, the power of such concurrent Christianity is powerful and much more undeniable. The key to reaching the lost is not the testimony of one bold articulate witness but the cumulative impact of seeing Christ in many people. Love one another. I mean, there's so many one another's in the Bible calling us to genuinely love one another as Christians. Romans 12.10 Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Tender affection. Emotional care for fellow Christians. You personally care for your fellow brother and sister in Christ. You're concerned about them. You're concerned about your own self, your own walk, your example, because you care for fellow believers. You're concerned about your speech, your conduct, because the last thing you want to do is discourage fellow Christians. Last thing you want to do is you hinder or lead astray by your speech or your conduct, a fellow believer in Christ. Honor one another above yourselves. You value them more than yourself. You value His needs, her concerns, her burdens more than your own concerns, needs or burdens. Romans 12.16, live in harmony with one another. You're seeking peace always with fellow Christians. Do not be proud. Do not be conceited. You understand how pride destroys relationships. How self-centeredness, being self-willed, being self-focused ruins Christian unity. Therefore, you fight against pride wherever it's seen. Romans 13.8 Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. Romans 13.8 Your mentality is, I owe love to you, brother. Right? I don't owe you anything else. Right? When we're out of the restaurant, I want to pay. I want to pay for the meal. I don't want to owe you anything. Right? I want to serve you. I want to give to you. I don't want to be in a position of being indebted to you in any way, except for one thing. I owe you my love. Romans 14.13 Let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle obstacle in your brother's way. I'm not going to impose upon you my preferences, my convictions, my decisions in life. I'm not going to stumble you in any way. Romans 14, 19 Let us pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. 
Romans 15.7 Accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. So the Jews and Gentiles had a problem. Gentiles had a difficult time accepting Jews and Jews had a very difficult time accepting Gentiles. They grew up seeing them as dirty, as dogs. They were not even enter into their homes, let alone eat with them. No, in Christ there is no Jew, Gentile, slave or free, male or female. We are one in Christ, so we are to accept one another freely as God has accepted us in Christ. Not labeling as the world does. Romans 15.14 Admonish one another. Admonish. That's where love is tested. That's where love is tested. You see a brother or sister in Christ with food in their face. Right. And because you love him or her, take him aside and say, you know what? You got some, uh, you know, cream cheese on your face. Right? You got a, you know, a little bit of that bagel for snacks still on your, you know, face. Right? Hey, let me get it for you. Right? That's an act of love. An act of fear of man, selfishness is, let him be. That's his problem. Right? That's his, that's his fault. True love seeks to care by admonishing one another. Romans 16.16 16, Greet one another with a holy kiss. Physically, personally loving one another. This is how we first glorify Christ. By loving one another. Second, we glorify Christ by leaving behind legalism. Leaving behind legalism. Legalism is basing our relationship with God on our own performance. Is putting aside the cross of Christ and saying, I'm going to get to God by my way, by my works, by my righteousness. I like Mahaney's definition. Legalism is seeking to achieve forgiveness from God and justification before God through obedience. A legalist is anyone who behaves as if they can earn the forgiveness of the cross through personal performance. Thomas Schreiner said, legalism has its origin in self-worship. If people are justified through their obedience to the law, then they merit praise, honor, and glory. Legalism, in other words, means the glory goes to people rather than God. Legalism then is self-atonement for the purpose of self-glorification that is ultimately for self-worship. Let me say that again. Legalism is self-atonement. You want to atone for your own sins. Pay for your own sins. Make yourself, make yourself righteous. With the purpose of self-glorification, you want the glory, you want the praise, you want the honor that is ultimately for self-worship. You want to be thought highly by others. Sinclair Ferguson said how easily fall we fall into the trap of assuming that we, we remain justified only so long as there are grounds in our character for justification. The idea that I'm saved as long as there's a basis for me to be saved. There is some righteousness in me that would cause God to respond in a way of saving me. Some signs of legalism. Do you often find that you're more aware of your sin than of what Jesus accomplished at the cross? This morbid, introspective, self-focused 
a mindset, just moaning, being convicted of your sin, but never moving to the cross, or not moving to the cross fast enough, but wallowing in self-pity, wallowing in guilt and shame. And it's just self-centered pride. It's legalism. Do you think of God as disappointed with you rather than delighting over you? Do you lack holy joy? Do you look to your own spiritual performances, achievements as a source for confidence, even the right approach to God? Brothers and sisters, let us not go back to Egypt. Let us not go back to slavery. Let us not go back. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. He has set us free. The, 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 the shackles of slavery has been broken. Let us not go back. We must maintain two horizons with one horizon becoming more distant and dimmer and with another horizon becoming brighter and more clearer, more visible, more closer. The, the horizon that is growing more distant is that we are painfully aware of our sins. And we must be so. But more and more, we are aware in God's answer to our sins. And we delight in God's forgiveness of our sins through the cross. We never lose sight of our sins. No. But we never lose sight. And that side of the cross grows as we see where sin abounds, grace superabounds. Where sin was there, Christ's love and God's grace is far superior. We must understand God weeps over our sins and failings. But ultimately, He delights over us. Because we are His children, not by our works, not by our righteousness. We are His children because we are in Christ by faith. Therefore, as parents, we delight over our children. God delights over us. Joy is to be the constant and abiding attitude of our hearts. Because our Lord is not dying on the cross for our sins. If that was the case, joy would not be our abiding attitude. But because Christ finished the work, the telestai, it is finished. Because Christ accomplished, because Christ defeated, because Christ redeemed, because Christ rescued us. The abiding, constant attitude is joy, holy joy. We have great confidence in life, death, ministry, and service because it is based on the cross. If we live our lives based upon our works, if I'm ministering to you this morning based upon my own accomplishments, I do with great trepidation, great anxiety, great fear, man-centered fear. We're able to do all that we do with confidence because it is based on the cross of Christ. We approach God boldly because we are not coming to Him based on our holiness, but by Jesus Christ. Let's do away with legalism. Do away with ourselves. And third way, we glorify God 
is by taking up the cross ourselves. Taking up the cross ourselves. Quote again from John Piper. Jesus died to save us from hell, but not to save us from the cross. Christ died to save us from hell, but not to save us from the cross. He died so that we could be glorified, but not to keep us from being crucified. In other words, what Christ said in Luke 9.23, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily. If you would save your life, you must lose it. If you would follow Jesus, you must take up your cross daily. As Piper said, the great tragedy of much contemporary Christianity is that the cross is safely relegated to distant past. <coughs> Practically what it means is that Jesus was soaked in blood so that I can soak in a jacuzzi. And bigger the top, the more we honor the cross, so goes the prosperity gospel. The cross is not merely a past place of substitution. It is also a present place of daily execution. The execution of pride. The execution of boasting in men. The execution of self-reliance. And the execution of the love of money and status and the praise of men. It is daily dying to ourselves where we don't enjoy our Christian life, enjoy this world because of the cross. No. Christ died so that we might die to this world, that we might be crucified, no longer living for ourselves, but for Him who died and was raised again. What is the main thing in your life? Are you going to the cross? Are you carrying the cross? Are you seeking to die and follow Christ and deny yourself? Right. Are we pursuing Christ and His cross as the main, singular, passion, pursuit of our lives? Our Father, we praise You and thank You for Your grace and glory. We ask, O oh God, for your grace continually in our lives. For without the cross of Christ, we are still in our sins and we are not able to carry the cross. We're not able to make the cross of Christ the main thing in our lives. Oh Lord, we pray that Calvary would dig its roots deep into our hearts and it would grip us. It would cause us to be changed. Not in the outer man, but in the inner man. That in our innermost being, Lord, there will be an earnest desire, earnest passion to leave all things in the world and consider them rubbish that we may know Christ and pursue Him. Oh Lord, we so need Your help, so need Your grace. Living in the 21st century in Southern California, where it's 80 degrees in November. Lord, comfort and luxury and pleasantries abound in us. 
abound all around us. The world is so alluring. The world is so tempting. Leading us away from the, the ugliness of the cross to the comfort of living in this modern world. Oh God, would you show us mercy and grace that we do not deserve and allow us not to waste our lives, not, not keep us from the temptations of this world and the love of, of the world and the things in the world and the lust of the eyes and the, and the boastful pride of life. Oh, would you keep us near the cross, clinging to its power so that the world might see the utter might and power of the cross of Christ. We, we ask, oh God, not because we are good, but we ask because you are good, because you are merciful, because you listen to those who are in Christ. We beg these things of you, that the cross would not just be doctrinally the center of our lives, but practically, in day-to-day, large and small decisions, in the mundane decisions, we would see the power of the cross. In Jesus' name, Amen.